name's Lauren Jones. I'm a deacon here at Mercy View. Tonight we'll be reading from Romans uh, chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, Mercy View. My name's Trey. I am a uh, partner here, but also on staff. I serve as the Staff Deacon for Discipleship, um, and I'm excited to open God's Word with you this evening. Uh, if you have your Bibles and they're still open to Romans 13, uh, 11 through 14, I want you to leave a thumb there. Um, but we're going to, it's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Uh, but we're actually going to start as we dive into what Paul is saying uh, by going to a different place toward the back of your Bible uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 3. That's where I want us to begin this evening. Now, when you think about the book of Revelation, there's probably some combination in your head of Jesus with white hair, fire in his eyes, slaying the dragon and the beast before casting the devil and all his followers into the lake of fire, followed, of course, by what Anna read for us in Revelation 21 of that blessed city coming down from above of the new heavens and new earth and what God is going to do at the end of the age. Um, and, and really, all of that is focused in on the end of the age. It's focused on uh, the last things, the end times, because that's a big part of the vision that John saw in Revelation. It concerned those things. That's our blessed hope. It's what we long for as believers for that day. And so we think about the terrible and dreadful things because they make good movies. I mean, or okay movies, let's not call them good. Um, and the glory of the day when all the sad things come untrue is, is actually something that we want to think about. The day where Jesus rules and reigns and sin and death are defeated forever. They vanish from existence. Um, but my guess is, the first thing that you think about isn't Jesus having the Apostle John write some letters to a group of churches in Asia Minor about their current situation at the end of the first century. The first thing you think about is probably the last things, but the first thing that Jesus thinks about as he begins his revelation is these churches that are dealing with some problems right here and right now at the end of the first century. The letter starts, John's revelation starts with the present. And as such, it has something for us as well. It's not just the future things. And Revelation 3 has something for us as we consider our text in Romans 13. Because one of the letters that Jesus had John write was to a church in the city of Sardis. And Jesus says to them, I know your works. You have this reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, 
and you will not know at the hour I will come against you. And he goes on and he, he says that this, this problem, it's clearly pervasive enough that it warranted a letter. But he says that not everyone there is in this kind of spiritual slumber, this sleep that's taking place in the city of Sardis. And he promises that if they repent, then they'll endure till the end. They'll have a fruitful life in the kingdom. Now here's why I'm drawing our attention as we get ready to unpack Revelation 13, 11 through 14, to this letter to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3. And this is Revelation, Romans 13. Uh, they have the same problem. Paul is trying to keep the church in Rome from falling into what a few de decades later the church at Sardis has already entered into, this spiritual sleep. Jesus begins his letter by actually saying that they're dead, that they have a reputation for being alive, but they're really not. And what Paul says in Romans 13, 11 sounds really similar. He says, wake from sleep. There is this call in this text that we're going to unpack this evening to be alert and diligent, to be spiritually awake and aware. And the problem for Sardis is that they weren't really spiritually awake or aware at all. So scholar George Ladd says in his commentary on Revelation that the, the church, though it had this reputation for being good, it, it, it wasn't awake. And it's not like it was troubled by persecution. It was not disturbed by heresy. It was not distressed by Jewish opposition. It was well known as an active, vigorous Christian congregation characterized by good works and charitable activities. But in the sight of God, all of these religious activities were a failure because they were only formal and external, not infused with the life-giving Holy Spirit. Here is a perfect example of purely nominal Christianity, which in all outward and formal aspects is outstanding, but which in the sight of God is a complete failure. Their spiritual indifference was due to the fact that Christians, while maintaining outwardly their good works and Christian activities, wish to adapt themselves to the luxury and pleasures of their pagan environment. So as we read Revelation 3 in light of our text this evening, and we consider what Jesus says about Sardis and the danger that Paul is addressing in Rome, to be spiritually asleep when we should be awake seems like a pretty scary place to be. Spiritual apathy for you and I seems far scarier and far more deadly and dangerous than bowls of wrath and locusts with scorpion tails or whatever else we find in Revelation. It's scary because it's a present danger for us. That's the reason that Paul and Jesus are both addressing it, writing to specific churches at the time. Spiritual apathy, being asleep at the wheel of the Christian life, it lurks around the corner for every believer in every church. And the danger for us is that when things are good, when like Sardis, we're not troubled by persecution, we're not disturbed by heresy, we're not pressed by opposition on all sides, all of our good works and all of our right theology can lead us to feel like we can just kind of coast through life. And all the while, we're just kind of sleepwalking past the spiritual graveyard. 
And so Jesus is speaking to those who are already down the apathetic road. And he's hoping that he's going to jolt them out of it. And in our main text tonight, Paul is warning us not to even start down the road to begin with. Whether we're already spiritually apathetic or we're simply unaware of the danger that exists, what Paul has to say here, my prayer tonight is that it'll jolt us awake if maybe we are finding ourselves drifting toward apathy. It's clearly a danger. Because Paul and Jesus both are addressing it. And so if we can still down uh, our passage from Romans 13 into a single, probably run-on sentence, it would be this. As Christians, we are to diligently pursue maturity in Christ, not giving an inch of ground to sin, because in Christ, darkness has given way to light. The night is far gone. So wake up. There's three ways that I think we see in the text for us to do this, to obey uh, what God would say to us through Paul's letter to Rome, to recognize the time, to wake up from our slumber, and to be active in our pursuit of Christ, to diligently pursue maturity in him. So if you happen to take notes, you can jot down these uh, to kind of help you outline where we're going this evening. First, uh, the first thing we see here in Romans 13 is that we have a call to prudent awareness. He says to know that the, uh, the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Second, we also see that we, we have this need to walk in diligent obedience. Because though we're set free from the law of sin and death, we are set free to glorify God through faithful obedience to him. And the last thing that we're going to see in our text this evening is we need to see that our lives should be marked by a proactive faithfulness. A kind of faithfulness that makes no provision for the flesh but being filled up in Christ. So with those things in mind, I want you to look with me at verse 11 as we unpack what it means to have prudent awareness. We're going to read down through the first sentence of verse 12. But here, starting in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, he says, Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Paul starts this section with a transition phrase. Besides this, you know the time. And so besides what? What is it that he's referring to? What's he talking about? Well, he's referring back to what Brad hit on for us last week, this fulfilling of the law through love. And he's, he's been building out this Christian ethic, this Christian way of living since the beginning of chapter 12. And to this point in chapter 13, it's culminating in obedience to Jesus's command that he gave to the disciples. He says, hey, this is a new command that I give to you. Love one another. That was the new command. And, and, and the second great commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul's been building on these themes and, and he showed us what it looks like to walk out the Christian life. And he gets to what we looked at last week at Romans 13, 8 through 10. And he says, hey, all of this is fulfilling the law through love. 
And so as he moves into this final stanza of chapter 13, he says, besides all of that, which should be plenty to motivate us, we need this wake-up call. Spiritual apathy is a real danger. The idea of spiritual, moral, intellectual slumber and stupor, it would have been a pretty common theme for uh, his Greco-Roman audience. And so Paul says, because of the time, because we know what time it is, the believers that he's writing to, and those of us this evening, need to wake from sleep. Now, he's clearly not using time in a literal sense. He's not talking about, hey, like, man, the alarm's going off and you need to get up. You just missed the clock and you're going to be late for work. He's pointing to time in the sense of a season, of an age. The age that we live in, the age that the Roman church was living in, it was coming to a close. And I say we because the time that was at hand in Romans is the same time for us. They were, and we are, living in the last days. Which is why Revelation actually matters a lot for us. And it mattered a lot for them. He follows this call to wake up by saying that the reason that we need to wake up is because salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So what's he getting at? What's he trying to, to move us toward and point us to? I think R.C. Sproul has, has a good point when he notes that we have to remember that the Bible speaks of salvation in the past, present, and future tense. Those of us who are already in Christ are already justified. We're in a state of, in a state of salvation, but the fullness, the full measure of our salvation has not yet been experienced. There is a repeated theme in the New Testament, a call to vigilance and to diligence, realizing that we are living in the last days. And so the reality that we live in is that Christ has come. He has fulfilled the law. The kingdom of God has broken into the world. Sin and death have been defeated. But, and this is a really big but, Christ has not yet returned in glory to make all things new. And so we live in this in-between time. Actually, Corbin stole half of my first section here, right, when he talked about this already not yet experience of the Christian life and, and talked exactly about this, that salvation is something that has happened, but it is not completed in us yet because we've not made it to glory yet. Christ has not returned And so we live in this middle tension. It's already, because all the stuff that we just talked about, because of all that Christ has accomplished, it's done. And it's not yet. Because it will finally be, has not yet arrived. And so in the in-between, where we are right now, and where Rome was 2,000 years ago, We're called to this Christian ethic, this Christian way of life that Paul's been unpacking through these last two chapters that we've been looking at for the last couple of months. This new Christian ethic that Paul is laying out, it culminates in everything we saw last week. And so keeping that new commandment to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so here's why I think Paul is following up these ethical commands with this reminder that we need to wake up. We need to be jolted awake from slumber. 
It's because it's already hard enough to put the Christian ethic of these two chapters into practice. But it will be practically impossible if we're spiritually asleep. We can't be sleeping on the job. The task at hand is actually an urgent task. And so we need to have a prudent awareness of the time in which we live. To be prudent is to show care and attention for the future. And and when we add awareness to that, we have this concept of not only paying attention to the future, but of being able to discern the moment in which we actually live and act accordingly. That's largely what Sardis wasn't doing when Jesus wrote to them in Revelation 3. And it's what Paul, including this wake-up call here, shows us is a real temptation for the Roman church and I think for us this evening. That it's really easy to get lulled into sleep. Like maybe we're being lulled to sleep by the daily grind of ordinary life. Maybe we're being drawn back into the practices of sin that we used to live in. I think that's something that uh, Lad's commentary actually hit on there at the end. If you, you heard that, that one of the things that was happening in Sardis is that they had just grown really comfortable. And there was something alluring about being able to kind of keep a foot here in the, the church and in these Christian activities because these were virtuous things that were good for society, but also kind of a foot over here in the world and in some of the pagan practices and things that they had been living in. And it's clearly something that's a danger to the church in Rome because Paul's going to talk about some of that. Maybe we're just being... Uh, just we're just not aware of what's going on the biggest danger is that as this new christian ethic becomes a habit i think this is the biggest biggest danger something that in some parts seemed to have happened at sardis the grind of the routine can actually lull us to sleep i think that's the reason paul includes this right here because this christian ethic though it's hard Though it's, it's hard work and something that actually takes a lot of effort to put into practice, when it becomes habit, there's a danger that that habit can just become routine in such a way that we're not paying attention to what we're actually doing anymore. We're just being good church folks. We're just being good citizens. We're just being good neighbors. And we're not aware of the time in which we're living. And we start to drift. We start to drift off asleep. We begin to lose that sense of urgency that we once had. It's like driving on the interstate on a long road trip. My wife can attest to this, and so can Jacob, um, because we've been on a road trip together. Um, It's really important to be awake and aware when you're driving 75, 80 miles an hour down the highway. And what happens to me when I'm driving 75, 80 miles down the highway um, is on those long stretches of road, when the sun's specifically shining in like from the west in the evening and it's warm and I'm starting to get comfortable, it is not very long before I start to hear the sound of those rumble strips on the side of the road as I start drifting because of my want of slumber into the median, (laughs) right? It begins to happen every now and then. If I don't have a pack of sunflower seeds and some copious amounts of caffeine, things can get real bad. Because as I'm going down the road, 
doing the same thing that's hard work and takes a lot of focus and a lot of concentration, as that becomes routine, it's really easy to start to drift and to drift off into sleep. And so what Paul is doing here is he's coming into the end of this section of talking about the Christian ethic like those rumble strips on the side of the highway. And he's saying, hey, y'all, don't fall asleep. And if you are, wake up. Exercise some wisdom. Be prudent. Examine and understand your own heart. Be aware and start living your life with some urgency. There is a sense of urgency needed for us to be persistent and diligent as we fold these new habits and disciplines of the Christian life into our day-to-day. It's important. It matters. Because they don't come naturally. They take work. But they can become habit. Which is why Paul, in the rest of verses 12 through 13, wants to infuse us with the diligence that we need to live obedient lives in Christ. Because it's in obedience to Christ that we put to death the sin that actually does come natural for us. So that's the second thing that we need to see tonight uh, in our text, is that once we wake up and we start living with prudent awareness... We're then called to walk in digital or diligent obedience. Just be diligently obedient to Christ. Look at verse 12. We're going to read the whole verse and then what we haven't read so far. The, the night is far gone, Paul says. It's daytime. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And here's what we really need to unpack right here with these verses. Diligent obedience involves both negation and addition, taking off and putting on. It's both a positive and a negative action. Paul starts with the negative because he's starting with us in our natural state where apart from Christ all of us are and where in Christ we still wrestle and struggle which is why we need that confession of sin each Sunday, each day. He's established this already throughout Romans but none of us is righteous. We're all sinners condemned to death in Adam and we're all drawn to the things that our new man in Christ hates rather than what our new man wants to do. And so as we start to wake up, the danger is that we will become complacent and fall back into sinful patterns. And so diligence is defined as careful and persistent work. And that's what Paul is calling us to here. He says, cast off the darkness, the works of darkness, so then... Because the night is not just gone, it's far gone, and the day is at hand. We're to get rid of these works of darkness. Much like the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, Since therefore we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Paul is saying, we have got to get this stuff off of us. We've got to cast it aside. 
And he doesn't mince words about what he's calling sinful and out of bounds and works of darkness here. Orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. These are works of darkness, things that aren't proper for the daytime. Paul isn't arbitrary, including these specific vices, but he's not being exhaustive either. These aren't the only sins that matter, yet it's interesting that not only do these same vices by and large show up multiple times throughout Paul's writings and in other places in the New Testament, they're particularly potent vices in our day too. As a side note, in our current vocabulary, I think Paul's first word here in this list can kind of throw us off a little bit when he says orgies because it carries the sexual connotation that it didn't necessarily carry in the first century. Like it was there, but what was really being communicated here actually I think is communicated better by some of the older English translations that called it carousing because the idea that he's trying to get at is uh, this idea of loud drunken parties, this rabble-rousing revelry seems to be a little bit more helpful uh, for us, especially when we consider that he follows it up with talking about sexual immorality. So let's not get hung up on that word. Um, What we see broadly are these three big categories, though, of vice that Paul's trying to make us aware of because he's these things that we can slide so easily into. And I think these three categories are things that in our day, man, we get drawn into so easily. And so the first one, those, those first two words... They're marked by decadent overindulgence. The next two are marked by promiscuous and licentious sexuality. And the final two are relational bitterness that's built on envy. And each of these three categories are rooted in a uh, kind of self-gratifying indulgence that elevates pleasure or desire or comfort to sinful places in contrast to that new Christian ethic that we've been talking about of love for neighbor as self an ethic of if it feels good or right to you do it is waiting in the wings to take its place if we fall asleep this is the kind of attitude and these are the kinds of activities that the gospel calls us out of not things that God's people are to be participants in. Maybe this was the life that you used to live. But this isn't who you are in Christ. Yet it seems there was a danger then, and there is for us today, that as we are lulled into spiritual slumber, these vices just don't seem all that bad. After all, aren't pleasure, desire, and comfort good things? Isn't it okay to have those things? R.C. Sproul is helpful here again. He says, entirely too much license is practiced by the church today. Free from the law, O blessed condition, sin as I please and still have remission, is the antinomian, the lawless theme song encouraged by growing numbers of evangelicals. Paul does not shrink from naming these vices as sin, nor should we. Flee such immorality in favor of being clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Friends, are you caught up in sin? 
You might not be spending your nights in carousing and drunkenness, but are you overindulging in a kind of decadence offered to you simply by living in the West? Like there is as much sinful indulgence involved in binging Netflix with a couple bottles of wine and some DoorDash nachos as there is in rabble-rousing out in the town. It's just sneakier. And it's much better at lulling you into spiritual sleep. Paul says, cast it off. Like if you bought into our culture's, our culture's lie and trap of sexual freedom, but listen, we live in a world that offers avenues to sexual sin that would make a pagan Roman noble blush. And it's, it's not innocuous. It's not just something that exists. Christian, if you are in Christ, you are not the sum total of your sexual desires. And sexual fulfillment does not lead to ultimate and lasting joy. I think the biggest danger for those of us in the room tonight, it may not be overindulgence or sexual immorality. Um, maybe we just understand the danger there and we're staying away. But our danger tonight is falling into the vice that is so good at avoiding detection, quarreling and jealousy, being drawn into relational bitterness built on envy. This vice, it finds its roots in breaking the 10th commandment and we're drawn by our sinful hearts into coveting what our neighbor has. We talked about it a few weeks ago when we talked about what it means to rejoice with those who rejoice. And that uh, when we fail to do that, a lot of times what's happening is that we're becoming covetousness, covetous in our hearts. We begin to think that what's happening when someone else receives something good is God's holding out on me. He's not giving me what I deserve. And when that begins to work its way into our hearts, we begin to get jealousy and bitterness. And James says that's what causes quarrels and fights among us, right? That we desire and don't have, and so we fight and we try to steal, and, and all of this is taking place inside of our hearts. And it's sneaky. It's sneaky. And so for each of these, Paul is calling us to cast off these works of darkness, to repent like Jesus calls the sleeping church in Sardis to do. And as we take off these old patterns of living and we put away the works of darkness, diligent obedience also requires that we put on the armor of light. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 6 when he describes the armor of God. If you've read Ephesians 6, then you know Paul is framing for us this idea of spiritual battle that is raging because we don't just live in a material world. There's spiritual realities that we can't always see. There's always something vying for our attention. And most of the time, it's not just what's on the TV. And it's not just what we hear on the radio. It's not just what we're experiencing in the natural. Oftentimes, oftentimes, there's something behind that that's a work of the enemy. Yet when we come to Christ... And we put on the armor of light. We're putting on what God has given us to not only protect us from the schemes of the devil, we're taking up the weapons that we need to fight back as well. That's what happens when we put on Christ. We not just take off sin, 
It's the positive portion of diligent obedience. And it ties directly into the last thing I want us to see tonight. When we cast off sin and we put on the armor of light, we are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is how we're able to actually walk in proactive faithfulness. You want to be prudently aware and diligently obedient? Be proactive in your faithfulness to Christ. Look at verse 14. It says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Proactive faithfulness is what it looks like to make no provision for the flesh. One commentator I read this week said it like this, the flesh will make its own demands. There is no need to meet it halfway. If you've lived more than a day as a Christian, then you know that this is true. The desires of the flesh, they want to be gratified. And your flesh will remind you of that again and again. And think about what God says to Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Cain has offered an offering up to the Lord. Abel's has been accepted. Cain's was not regarded. And the Lord comes to Cain. He says, hey man, why are you angry? Like, why are you so upset? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin, the flesh, it makes its own, its own demands. It wants to have you. And what Paul is showing us that, is that it is entirely possible that we will be more than willing to meet it halfway. If it wasn't a temptation for us, he wouldn't say it explicitly. Make no provision. Don't give an inch to sin. So what does it mean to make provision for the flesh? When we make provision for our flesh and the sinful desires that still reside in our hearts, when we stop short of what Paul charges us to do in Colossians 3, he says to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What the Puritans called mortifying the flesh. When we fail to mortify, to kill our sin, We're making provision. We're leaving room for sin to gain an inch. Addiction's an easy way to understand making provision for sin. The alcoholic stashes booze. The drug addict hides pills. The porn addict keeps open lines of access. And and those are all ways that provision can be made. But sin is way too sneaky to just creep into our lives when we fall into addiction. Let's say you struggle with anger, but you've been working on it. Making provision for your flesh is doing things like procrastinating, staying up far too late, being lazy and undisciplined. And as the due dates approach or the sun floods your rooms when your kids come and open the blinds in the morning, all of a sudden you're angry and you're irritable and it's all in all these sinful ways. And you wonder, where did this come from? I was doing so well. You made provision for the flesh. You gave it an inch, and sin will take a mile. Think back to the last example in verse 13, jealousy. I think jealousy is one of the most pervasive and sneaky sins that we face as believers because it's one of those throwaway sins, right? It's like gossip. Like, does it really matter that much? 
It does. Like the orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, like, yeah, those are big deals, but jealousy, that one's so sneaky. It'll sneak right back in and wreck your life in an instant. And so making provision for jealousy, it looks like doing that deep dive on that one friend's Instagram feed who has the perfect house and the perfect kids and the perfect husband and always goes on the best vacations and just going, gosh, why is it my life like that? Well, there's nothing wrong with going and admiring what's happening. And you say, I'm just going to her page because she posts the cutest reels. Like her kids are so cute. But perfect post after perfect post, it breeds bitterness in our hearts. And you start to covet. You want what she has and you can't have it. And so how do we do what Paul says here? How do we not make provision for the flesh? How do we walk in proactive faithfulness so that we can be diligently obedient and prudently aware as we live the Christian life? The answer is found right here in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already told us to put on the armor of light, but now he says that we are to put on not just the armor of light, we're to put on Christ himself. F.F. Bruce in his commentary on Romans notes that there's this literary parallel here in Romans um, where Paul calls us to put on Christ. There's a phrase um, put on that's quoted in another ancient text that means to play the part of the person that you're putting on. So we have this phrase quoted multiple times in Paul where we're told to put on Christian virtues like new clothes or to put on the new man that we're created to be in Christ. But uh, but Bruce says here that Paul is telling us to put on Christ. And in doing so, he's exhorting believers to put on Christ in the sense of manifesting outwardly what we've already experienced inwardly. Like what Christ has done for us in dying on the cross and taking our sins has worked salvation inside of us and it's worked faithfulness and righteousness into our hearts and what Paul is saying here when he says hey put on the Lord Jesus Christ is let what's done inside of you through the finished work of Jesus be worked out to the world around you so that you are living in such a way that Christ is glorified that your brothers and sisters are edified and so the world sees that you are a new creature in Christ. Put on Christ. It's the call to not simply rest in our justification where we've been made like Christ through faith positionally, but to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. To live holy lives, making no provision for the flesh by not only becoming like Christ positionally, righteous because he is righteous, but in the way that we actually live, we cast off our sin. We put roadblocks in the way of the avenues back into gratifying the flesh, and we seek to look like Jesus. We play the part of Jesus, so to speak. Like a method actor, we dive deep into our understanding of the person of Jesus and our love for him, desiring to be like him, and then we start to become like him. And so you want to be proactive in your faithfulness to Christ? Get around God's people. 
Good news for you. You've done that. You're here tonight. Okay? Get around other people who want to look like Jesus. Open up the word of God. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in worship. Like, listen, friends, that's not just a bunch of churchy religious activity. Those are gifts from God that we have been given so that we can look like Christ. It's a gift from God that we get to worship together with the people of God, that we can read his words, that we can enter into his presence with our prayers and our praise, and that he hears us. Friends, may we not sleepwalk through life thinking that all God wants or asks of us is a prayer and getting dunked in some water. Paul's charge in this text is for you and I to wake up, to recognize that we are closer to eternity today than we were yesterday. Because we're closer to death or the return of Jesus, whichever comes first. If Jesus was to write a letter to Mercy View, like he did to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, would they sound any different? Are we spiritually awake, aware of the time in which we live? Are we walking in obedience? Are we being proactive in our faithfulness to Christ? Or are we asleep? Have we allowed ourselves to be lulled into sleep by the things of the world or the daily grind of the ordinary Christian life? Is there an urgency in our genuine love for one another and all the ways that we've seen that it means to, to play that out over the last couple of months? The reality of tonight's text is that most of us are probably walking away feeling a little bit convicted in some way. Maybe it's because we've been sleeping when we should be awake. Maybe it's because we're failing to cast off darkness. The ones Paul mentioned here, or maybe something else that he didn't. Maybe we've been making provision for the flesh in our lives, and it keeps leading us back to gratifying sinful desires. Friends, the good news for all of us is that the call to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is an open invitation. You see, the grace of God that is extended to anyone in this room who has not yet trusted Jesus is available to each and every one of us who already have. He offers grace to us this evening. Grace to be awake. Grace to live with urgency. Grace to live in obedience. Grace to follow him with faithfulness as we seek to put on Christ. Let's wake up, friends. It's, our prayer. it's my prayer. Let's pray together.